Friends in the room, friends in Houston, Texas, El Paso, Indianapolis, Cedar Rapids, Des Moines, Iowa, Boise, Idaho, all the 15 different ports, live locations, and everybody tuning in online. We are continuing this series on the book of James. Let me uh, read the passage that we're going to be in tonight, and then I will uh, launch into it and give us some tracks for where we're going to be. This is James chapter 2, starting verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds or actions? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds and my actions. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without action is useless? useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? When he offered his son Isaac on the altar, you see that his faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous or right with God by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let me pray one more time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your half-brother James, who lived with you, who knew you, who grew up in the same house with you, who came to faith and believed that you were not just his brother, but you were the Savior of the world, that you inspired him to write and instruct and give teachings to us. And so I pray tonight that the incredible truths of what it looks like and what, how we can know that we have an actual, real faith were preserved and given to us. So I pray that you would use this time, you'd speak through us. I pray for everyone represented at the thousands of stories because there's thousands of people in this room and are listening all over the country right now in different locations whose names I don't know, but you do, who the number of hairs on their heads you know. You know everything, every anxiety they feel, every hope they have for their future, every pressure that's weighing them down, every sorrow that's weighing their heart, that they would encounter and meet you. And they would see that you're not a God who is distant, who's apathetic, but one who loves and runs after and cares and wants you all of his children to experience life. And so would that be believed, understood, and received tonight. In Christ's name, amen. 
Well, if you've been coming for any length of time, I, from time to time, will share about a hobby that I have on the side that is called flipping golf carts. What's flipping golf carts? It's not where you go up to a golf cart and you try to flip it on its side like cow tipping or something. It's where you buy a cheap golf cart off of some resale, you know, Facebook marketplace or Craigslist or OfferUp or any of that stuff. And I'll try to buy it and then flip it and at least not lose cash because it's one of the best hobbies, especially with kids, because in the meantime, you're fixing it up and trying to trick this thing out and you get to go cruise the neighborhood with kids every night. So this is, you know, this is what you do. This is what you have to look forward to, the exciting life ahead. But this will happen. And one, uh, one of these happened last late uh, November, early December, where I was like, man, we, we should go look for another golf cart, find one, found a good deal, kind of always have a pulse on that. It's a weird thing, but it's true. And found a good deal, went and bought it, was so excited. We're going to go look at Christmas lights. Lights will be out, kids in the car, just, uh, you know, on top of the world kind of feeling. Go buy the golf cart, everything checks out, get back home, load everyone up. Who's excited? We're going to go see Christmas lights. And it was like one of those just the top of the mountain. This is just the best hot cocoa. Four year, uh, five, yeah, four-year-old and a two-year-old at that time, sitting with me, mom, just cruising around the neighborhood, looking at Christmas lights, Christmas cheer. About a mile into, and less than that, maybe three-fourths of a mile away from our house, we're riding, and the thing completely shuts down. There's no go. I'm pushing the pedal. There's no gas. They're electric, so they run off of batteries. And I realized, man, this thing is not going anywhere. And it goes in a moment from like the best of times. <laughs> this is amazing and this is so great. Take a picture. To, oh my gosh, we're going to die out here where I'm having to push this thing with three people on it a mile all the way home, going up hills. The lights on it don't work anymore because it's not getting power. And it went from the best of times to the worst of times where you're just trying to hold it together and stay sane. And I'm pushing this thing home. And it was not a holly jolly Christmas evening, just to say that. So we go home, I get there, and I begin to look at like, man, what just happened? Did I just get totally scammed out of this golf cart? And I'm looking in, and they're pretty simple machines. It's going somewhere, by the way. They run off of six different batteries. So I check the batteries, I pull them out. I assume one of them is dead. Take these voltmeters, basically checks the positive, negative side. Go through, check all the different batteries. This one checks out, this one checks out, this one checks out. Boom. Dead battery. A golf cart can't run with a dead battery because it'll short out the circuit, essentially. And what had happened was one of those batteries, lo and behold, I was unaware, purchased it, and it was totally dead. What does that have to do with James chapter 2? Well, tonight, in the same way that I took a voltmeter and I was able to test and see which of these is dead in a dead battery, the passage we're going to look at is James's voltmeter as it relates to faith. Well, he's going to go through and he's going to say, hey, here's how you can know you have a living, saving, real faith. And here's how you can know you have a dead faith. And he's going to put a voltmeter up to our faith, our beliefs. Inside of the room, a lot of us would claim and say we're Christians. And James would say, if you claim to be a Christian, and yet if the voltmeter of God's word that we're going to explore comes up to your life, it's not necessarily what you say that matters. It's whether or not you actually have a real faith. I'm going to explain even what I mean by that and what I mean by faith. But James is going to say, there's a way that you can leave here tonight knowing 100% confident, I have a real, genuine, authentic faith. And there's a person who will leave here tonight and they should wrestle with the fact that according to James, I'm not actually a Christian. I don't have a faith. I don't even actually believe the things that James would say mean I'm a Christian. I don't know that there is a more important passage in the book of James that we're going to study. It's a passage that quite literally, James would say, depending on which camp you fall into it, 
dead faith or living faith answers the question of where you will spend your eternity someday. I know in the room there's also people who man, you're just kind of exploring the faith, and, and this is just for you to know, this is a message towards Christians. James is going to say one of the reasons that if you are exploring the faith, you wouldn't even say you're a Christian. One of the reasons a lot of times people don't like the church or Christians is because people will claim to be Christians or have a real faith. And James would say, they've got a dead faith. They don't live their lives like Jesus calls them to or like a person with a genuine real faith would. And so you may have written off Christianity and you weren't writing off actual Christianity. You were writing off a poser. So tonight, we're going to explore some of the most packed and punching verses that James has. It also is one of the most misunderstood passages. So we're going to go slow, address kind of the challenges inside of the text, and explore exactly what James is saying. If you're just joining us tonight, we've been going through the book of James. James, as I said earlier, was written by the half-brother of Jesus. You may not know this. Jesus had siblings. They didn't have the same dad because his dad was God, but they grew up in the same home. And James was one of them. He didn't always believe. In fact, for years, he thought his brother was crazy and starting some cult. And then his brother died. And he came back alive. And James spent the rest of his life going everywhere saying, I saw my brother die buried in the ground. And then he came back to life. He's the Savior. And he gave his life to it. And he wrote the earliest book of the New Testament. In other words, you do a trivia game after this, a torchy tonight, and you're like, hey, what's the earliest book of the New Testament? The book of James. He was the head of the church in Jerusalem, one of the key leaders that God used to see Christianity explode all over the world. And he writes this letter, and in it, he's writing to people, and he says, here's how you can know you have real faith. And let me tell you my biggest burden. Some of you right now, listening online, listening on the podcast, Future Day, listening at locations, you don't have a real faith. And the best thing that you can do is acknowledge that so that you can change that. Because you grew up in a Christian home, you went to Catholic school, you went through confirmation, you were an acolyte, but you've never actually had a true conversion, had a moment where you actually surrendered your life to Jesus. And tonight, James would say, this is your night, and the best thing you can do is stop faking it, hiding it, pretending it, and make the decision, I'm gonna actually evaluate, do I have a genuine faith? So we're going to look through the passage again. We're going to look at three things. What James says is worthless faith. What he says is authentic faith. And then what are the actions of authentic faith? So you can know like, oh man, man, that's me. I do have a real faith. Or you can know, that's me. I I don't have a real faith. So James chapter 2, verse 14. I'm going to read it again. We'll go slow through the text where he brings up the topic of worthless or dead faith. Here's what he says. What good is it? My brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but they have no actions that flow out of that faith, can such faith save them? In other words, hey, if somebody has faith, but it doesn't impact their life, is that actually a saving faith? Like, do they have genuine, real faith in God? Suppose, and then he uses an illustration, a brother or sister is without clothes and daily foods. They're shivering, they're cold, and they're hungry, James says. Imagine with me. And one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be blessed, stay well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? His point is, if somebody's starving, sitting there, they're freezing to death, and you just tell them, hey, 
be warm. God bless, brother. It does nothing to impact their life. He's using that as an illustration. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The first idea from the text is that workless faith is worthless faith. And I'm going to go real slow around the turns because it's really important to understand what James is saying, what he's not saying. But he says, hey, workless, actionless, a faith that doesn't produce, doesn't change, doesn't impact how you live, how you think, how you operate, is a worthless faith. Or he uses another analogy of it is a dead faith if it doesn't have works. Now let me address really quickly the interpretive challenge. What's an interpretive challenge? It's when you read the Bible and you're like, whoa, that seems a little interesting. Or that seems like it contradicts itself. All throughout the New Testament, there's verses, if you've been a Christian or around the Bible for some time, you've heard verses that seem to contradict what he just said. Because he just said, hey, you think you have faith, but you don't have works, you don't have actions, you're not really saved. James, that feels harsh, bro. Doesn't the Bible say you're saved by grace through faith, not by works? Yes, it does. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 through 10 says, it is by grace. Grace is giving a free gift, a gift that you don't deserve. It is by receiving an undeserved gift that you can be saved through faith or believing in Christ and what he did on the cross, rising again. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God's, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Is James and Paul contradicting each other? No. James is not saying that works are a requirement to be a Christian or to be saved. James is saying that good works are a byproduct of being saved. In other words, it's not what gets you into a relationship with God. It's what happens to people who get into relationship with God. It naturally begins to flow out of them. Even Paul's verse in Ephesians chapter uh, 2 says, hey, you've been saved by grace through faith. Nothing you've done, not because of anything you did. And then he goes immediately into, you are God's handiwork or masterpiece created for good works. You get saved and it leads to life change. As it's been well said throughout just church history, safe, I'm sorry, faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but a faith that saves, true faith, is never alone. We are saved by believing in Jesus and what he did on the cross. By faith alone. But once that happens, that faith or a saving faith never stands alone. It begins to impact and change lives. And James is saying, hey, if you have workless, actionless faith, you don't have real faith. You have a worthless faith. If it doesn't lead and change the way that you date, the way that you spend money, the way you use your time, you should be concerned. It's not dissimilar to this. Like if it's not working or if it's, there's no active uh, impact on how you live your life, you probably don't have a real, true, living faith. You have a dead faith. My, uh, at my home, I, am, I, I love security cameras. Here's why. Um, really big left turn here. It's one of my favorite things about living in 2021 is that security cameras, you know, 15 years ago, only like Bill Gates had security cameras. Now you can go on Amazon for like 25 bucks, your whole home, you can put them everywhere. They're wired and it just allows probably the neurotic part of my brain to be able to go like, oh, what's going on at home when I'm traveling or doing something on the road? So we've got them all over the place. And, uh, and recently I was like, man, I should put some in the backyard or like, 
I can't believe I'm that guy. I just put them in the backyard and maybe in the neighbor's yard too. And, and I was like, man, I'm going to buy an outdoor camera. Two, it's got a two-year battery on it and just put it there and I'll be able to see anybody that comes, you know, over there and jumps in the fence and you are not messing with my lady at home or my kids. So that's my mindset. I go buy the camera and I get it at home. I'm setting it all up, go to put it up and I set it and sync it with an app that you have on your phone that allows you to kind of see what's taking place. And I realize, man, this thing is not working. And so I try to turn it off, turn it back on, sync it back again. There's nothing taking place in this security camera. In other words, this thing that I bought that I thought would work and allow me to see and, and be able to patrol or know what is going on has no life in it. I can't see any signs of anything on there. And I'm looking through the manual, Googling how to, how to fix this thing. And it was a dead, entirely dead camera. It wasn't a camera at all. It's an expensive bunch of plastic because a camera that can't take footage and doesn't have video and can't look and see and use is worthless. And James would say, if you don't have a faith that impacts how you live, you have a worthless faith. That any faith that doesn't have works or that doesn't lead you to change or doesn't guide your life is a worthless, worthless faith. How else do you know if you have a dead faith? Well, what are things that are not dead do? They grow. Uh, some of you guys, if you live in a house, you went through Snowmageddon. I guess we all did if you live in Dallas. And at Snowmageddon, something happened if you have, you know, a house or you live in a place where there's plants and different things outside. For whatever reason, I have never known that whenever a huge storm comes in, you're supposed to go out and put like blankets on the plants. This is so weird to me. People are like covering them up like, all right, good night, honey. Okay. And, uh, and you're supposed to do this. And I don't ever know which ones to put it on because you don't have like 85 different blankets for all these different bushes. And so is it like any, meeny, miny, mo, or which one is going to most likely die? And so we just, we just don't do that. And we just rolled the dice. We rolled the dice at the end of Snowmageddon. It became very clear. Uh, Snowmageddon, for those in other locations, was in Dallas. It was a month ago and just snow, ice, craziness. It was very clear, it became very clear afterwards which things were living and which were dead because spring came right behind that and the things that were living all had one thing in common. They grew. They began to produce leaves and grow and the things that were dead did not. They still are not because they're sitting there and they're dead. If you have a genuine living faith, it is going to grow and a question you should be asking if you trusted in Christ, maybe at like age seven at Awanas, or you were raised in Catholic school and you went through confirmation, do you have a faith that when you look back, you see, I have grown. I am more spiritually mature today than I was last year, three years ago, four years ago. Because James would say, if you don't, you have a dead faith, living things grow. When you look back in your life, can you see a trajectory where things began to change? There's a lot of people in this room, when it comes to faith, you're right in line with what James says. And again, I'm talking, to, I'm talking to people who would say I'm a Christian. If you're here and you're exploring, man, you just get to look on and be like, <laughs> I can't believe you guys. These are people that would claim to be a Christian. And they have what James says. A lot of times people who claim to be Christians but aren't Christians do. They got lip service. Real, true faith. Is not lift service. It is a lifestyle. It impacts how you live. The guy said, you can say a bunch of words. I mean, the, the analogy he gives is the guy who is not genuine in his faith says, oh, stay warm, stay well fed. God be with you. That he has lip service. He just doesn't have a lifestyle that goes along with it. 
And if you don't have a lifestyle that goes along with your faith, and it's just, man, I am a Christian, I claim to be that, and yeah, I'm cool with God, you don't have a real faith. This is so huge in dating. Let me just say this really quick. There are people in this room, guys and girls, who would claim to be a Christian. They got a Bible, they go to the porch, they got Jeremiah 29, 11 in their Instagram bio right now. <laughs> and they are not Christians, biblically. Because if you ask them and you explain like, hey, what's the gospel? Or what does it mean to be a Christian? They'd be like, well, I try to be a good person and, you know, I, you know, I try to live my life in a good way and I go to church and pay my taxes. That's not what it means to be a Christian. It's not somebody who was raised in Catholic school and they went through mass and, or went through confirmation and they, you know, were all in and it was important. It's someone who has a moment in time where they believe Jesus is the son of God. And not just that he's the son of God, but he came and he died on a cross for them. For every sin, every abortion represented here, every look of pornography represented here, all the sexual sin represented here, all of it on the cross nailed. He died. He paid for it. And he rose again. And anyone who says, I accept Jesus paid for my sin on the cross, and he rose from the death, or rose from dead to prove that payment was more than enough, and I believe it. And I'll have eternity with God, not because I deserve it, but because he paid for it. That person is a Christian. Someone who says, man, you know, I'm cool with God, and, and I like church. Even if they say they are, you can say you're a Christian. That doesn't mean you are. I can say I'm a hippo. It doesn't mean I'm a hippo. And James says, it's not lip service. It is a lifestyle. The gap between someone, and we'll move off the dating thing. But the gap between someone who is a porch attendee or a church attendee and a Christ follower is enormous. And you need to make sure that when it comes to who you're evaluating, who you're considering dating, you are not dating just somebody who is attending the porch or attending church, but someone who is following Christ. Because that is a chasm or a grand canyon in between the two of them. And right in the middle, what's in that gap? Obedience to Jesus. They don't just put lip service out. It impacts their life and how they live. I know in this room, I mean, we live in Dallas. We live in the Bible Belt. You ask the average person, hey, what's your faith? They're going to say I'm a Christian. And by that, they mean I'm not an atheist and I'm not a Hindu. And, you know, as raised, we went to Easter and Christmas together growing up. And they're not a Christian. This past weekend, we went with my wife's family. We went to a lake house up in Oklahoma. And while we were there, they had this, this uh, extra large uh, checkers board. And I sat down. My five-year-old was like, oh, I want to play checkers. I've never played checkers before. And I sat down, and I'm looking at this extra large kind of checkers board. And I, I was like, oh, man, I loved checkers as a kid. Played it all the time. And I began to realize, I can't remember how to play checkers. I know it's a very simple game where you, you kind of hop over different things, but can you go forward and back? No, you can't go forward. Or is it diagonal? Do we, do, are we both on the same, like, checkers? Or what, what, and I had to look up the rules because it's been years. I, I can remember how to play chess. I can't remember how to play checkers. It's something that was so a part of, like, my childhood, but at some point you kind of walk away from that, and it's no longer a part of your active life or part of your life. That is what so many people's faith is like. It's this thing that like, oh yeah, I totally remember it. And Jesus, and there was Jonah, and there was a whale, and there was you know, God, and there's some cool stuff in there. And, and uh, you know, he died for us. And I, I, I went to church, and I was raised around it, and VBS. But it's just something from your past. It, it's not a part of your active present. And James would say, man, God's not angry at you. He loves you. He loves you so much. He has you here on a Tuesday night to know that if it's not a part of your lifestyle, it's not an active, living, real faith. 
He continues. And he goes into how you and I can see what authentic faith looks like. But someone will say, so he brings up in a theoretical, hypothetical person. You have faith, I have deeds, as though you could separate those. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and they are not saved. They shudder. James says, hey, the way that you can see, show me your faith without deeds, is like saying, show me how fast you are without running. Show me how strong you are without lifting a weight. Show me how intelligent you are without taking a test. It's not possible to do. That these two things are interrelated. That a person who has genuine faith, I believe, because the word faith means trust. A person who genuinely trusts God has that play out in their life and impact how they live, how they spend their time, who they are. He says, there is a belief. And how terrifying is this? There is a belief that doesn't save you. It makes you in the same grouping as the demons themselves. It's not a saving belief because it doesn't lead to a changing and impacting. It's a belief in or a belief about, but not to actually believe and a trust. He brings up demons, which is quite the left turn. But when you think about it, he's saying that, hey, the, the demonic realm, demons that are out there, they believe about God. They have a better theology probably than every person, including myself, on the stage up here. Over and over, if you read the New Testament, you read the Gospels, which is the stories of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus will walk around and he'll interact with different people and he'll show up inside of a village and somebody who will be demon-possessed will pop out and be like, uh, say things that are staggering. They know very well who Jesus is. They know better than the disciples, the 12 guys following them, like, oh, we're not exactly sure. And the demons will pop out and they'll say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? Here's one example. Mark chapter 1, verse 23. An impure spirit, Jesus walking through town, pops out and said, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They know exactly who he is, and they're not saved. They shudder in fear at him. And James says, a belief about God, a belief in God, is different than believing God. Let me explain, because that's a really, really important adjective, or a really, really important preposition. Believing in is different than I believe you. Someone can say, oh, yeah, I, I believe in God. Like, I believe in higher power. Or I believe in, you know, old man upstairs. I believe in, in uh, God up there of some sort. That is different than I believe God is who he says he is. And I believe him when he says you should date this way and save sex for marriage. I actually take him at that word and I trust him. I'm actually going to act in light of that. I believe that when he says, hey, you're not just here to get a paycheck and live your whole life, storing up as much cash as you can and living as though you're going to live forever in this world. You're to live and take all the resources, all the money, all the opportunities, all the time that you got and use them as though you're going to spend forever and eternity with God. And anything you give towards his kingdom, you're going to have a hundredfold given back to you in the life to come, which will be far longer than this one. He says that type of person, the person who doesn't believe in, like, oh, I think they exist up there, but I believe him is a saving faith. Demons, they believe in. They know he's there. They're terrified of him. They know he's powerful. They believe about him. They don't know him. 
And he would say, the way that you can know that is that authentic faith is an acting faith. It doesn't just believe about, it believes and acts. A behavior follows from that belief about God. Another way of saying it is, you can believe God is real, or you can believe God is Lord. A person who believes that God is real is somebody who would say, oh, I think there's a higher power, but that's different than someone who says, God, you're my Lord. What you say goes. I'm going to live my life for you. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. What you say, I'm going to seek to obey. The person who says that, you know, God is real, they attend church. They show up at the porch sometimes. They go to church on Christmas and Easter because it's just what you do. The person who believes God is Lord, not just God is there, they get plugged in. They dive in and do what Hebrews 10, 24 says, which is that you and I are to continue to gather in small groups and encourage one another and have these deep, real, authentic relationships with other Christians who come alongside and they encourage me when I'm struggling and I encourage them when I'm struggling and we both read the Bible together and we walk alongside of each other. That person believes he's Lord, not real. The person who believes he's real is like, yeah, dude, sex before marriage. Uh, you know, I'm not like just throwing myself out like I'm a crazy prostitute, but you know, we love each other and we're probably married in God's eyes in his ways and we're going to get married someday. And so it's not that big of a deal. That person believes God's real, but he's not their Lord. The person who believes he's Lord says, man, yeah, of course I'd love to sleep with my boyfriend. Of course I'd love to sleep with my girlfriend. But according to the Bible, sex is something that God gave us this incredible gift that takes place in the context of marriage. And so even though I don't feel like it, even though I don't want to, even though I'd love to sleep with her, that's not what we're going to do. And there's a huge difference, James would say, to the person who believes in God and believes God. I read, um, I can't believe I'm using this illustration, but it was, an, it was a fun book. I read, it was a book Matthew McConaughey wrote. And uh, <laughs> uh, I can't remember the name of it. Oh, Green Lights or something? Green Lights? So I was all, hey, stop judging me, people. Good grief. I'm not endorsing it either. I'm not... Uh, I know a guy who read this book by Matthew McConaughey, and um, <laughs> I'm praying for him. And uh, we were on vacation, people. I just wanted a fun... Re- Anyways, read the book, and in there, it's like basically his autobiography, and he goes through kind of his journey in life, and, and it's not at all a spiritually de- deep book or, or even something I'm recommending. But point being, I got to walk through, and like, oh, this is where his parents were. This is where he was raised. This is where, you know, he lived. He grew up. He went to school. This is kind of what he was like. Here's how he even got into that, like, all right, all right, all right moment. Here's all of Matthew's story. Now, if I ran into you in the lobby, and I began telling you, and you didn't know that I'd read the book, but you just knew, I just got into a conversation. I was like, oh, man, have I told you about my friend Matthew? And he is from East Texas. Great guy. Matthew McConaughey. Probably heard of him. He lives in Austin now. Real big UT fan, which I've got mixed feelings about. And he... Uh, and I walked through and I just was like, oh, and he's so great. And his kids, have you seen his, I love, his kids, they're the best. I love being around his kids. And you said, do you know Matthew? And I was like, yeah, of course I know Matthew. And they were like, how do you know Matthew? I was like, well, I read his book. <laughs> You'd say, you, you are like borderline stalkerish right now. You don't know Matthew. You know about Matthew. There's a difference between knowing someone and knowing about them. A lot of us, when it comes to God, you know about him. You don't know him. And you could say some things, and you got different nuggets you've picked up along the way, but you don't actually have a relationship with him any more than I have one with Matthew McConaughey. And James would say, God's not angry, and you could change that. In fact, God wants you to change that. He wants a relationship with you. 
He wants you to experience that. And that involves you trusting in Christ and not believing in God, but believing God and walking with him and acting out according to your faith that you claim to have. And then he finishes and he gives us the actions of authentic faith. So he walks through and he covers how you and I can know what it looks like to have authentic faith, which is that it always acts. And then he finally gives the actions that authentic faith has. So how you can know right now, do you actually have authentic faith? And he gives two illustrations from the Old Testament. One is patriarch, which is just like a father Abraham, and then one is a prostitute. Quite the gap, but he's going somewhere, and he proves his point by saying, hey, look at the actions that they had this real faith that was associated. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without action or deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, doing what true faith always does, which is they work together in tandem. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, not believed in God. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. He did what friends do, good friends anyways, and that they're willing to act out of that friendship. They're willing to come pick you up. They respond when you need a ride to the airport, when you're moving somewhere. They act on that. And he did what real friends or what a friend of God would do, which is he acted in light with his belief. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. The same you may have justified or counted as righteous. He's saying you can see a person has genuine faith not just by what they claim, but why and by how they act. That's what he says. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He goes into two illustrations. First one, Father Abraham. What's he talking about? Father Abraham was the guy God comes to. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis, first book of the Bible all the beginnings of how this whole thing started. God shows up to a guy named Abraham. Abe is sitting there. God says, hey, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Look up at the sky. See all the stars that are out there. As many stars as you could see out there beyond that, so shall your descendants be. And he looks up. Sky's full of them. Not like Dallas stars, but like out East Texas country stars everywhere. That's how many kids you're going to have. Abraham goes 75 years. God shows up again and says, hey, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. You're going to have kids after kids. He's like, hey, that's great, God. Problem is, I'm 75. My wife is 65. Not sure any baby's coming out of that. And I don't know what you're planning on doing because I'm not going to have any kids and I'm going to die without any kids. You promised. God's like, got you. It's going to happen. 20 years go by. God shows up again. says, hey, this time next year, you're going to have a kid. By this time, he's 100 or 99 years old. And it's te- it says his body is as good as dead. And, and his wife is 90. I don't know if you've seen any 90-year-olds recently, but not exactly the typical, you know, prenatal group that you're going to see at the hospital. But God shows up. He has a child, Isaac. We waited a century for a baby boy. How spoiled was that kid? We waited a century for you. Loves him, cares for him. God's promise came through. Then one day, God shows up 
And he says, Abraham, yeah, I want you to do something for me. I want you to take your son, your one and only son, whom you love. And I want you to take him to the place I will show you. And I want you to sacrifice him there on an altar to me. I want you to put him to death. I mean, how staggering is that if you're Abraham? Like, oh, this, this is the child we've been waiting. This is the one that you promised. It was through him. You didn't say any child. You said through this child, you're going to bless all of the world. The Savior will come through this one child. How can you be asking me to do that? And it says that Abraham believed that if God even had to raise him back from the dead, he would. And he trusted God with his most prized possession. And he takes his son. His son's a young boy. Doesn't know what's going on. He says, Isaac, we're going to go worship the Lord. I need you to carry this wood. And he has his son carry the wood for his own death. All of which foreshadowing Jesus. Who unlike Isaac, who would not be killed, was killed. The son of the father. Who carried his own cross like Isaac carried the wood. But Isaac is walking along with his dad, walking out there, and they get to this place called Mount Moriah. And they have this servant with him, and Abraham says, hey, so you stay here. Me and Isaac are going to go up the mountain, and we will both come back. That he knew no matter what happened, God had promised, I don't know what's about to go down, but even if my son's life is taken, he will be brought back to life. And they're walking up, and Isaac says, Dad, you know, we've worshipped tons of times. We've done this, but... We got wood. We don't have a, like a lamb or anything to kill. How, what was that moment like as a dad? And he takes his son and they build an altar and he lays him down. And he raises up and he's about to kill his son. And out of nowhere, God says, don't kill your son. And he raises his eyes and he sees out in the thicket there had been a ram that had been caught there. And God provided a sacrifice. The reason he didn't have to kill his son is God knew he was about to, he would 2,000 years later kill his. But Abraham believed and trusted God and acted even on the most prized, precious possession that he had. I trust you. It led him to act even when it cost him. Rahab, what happened to Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute. Not exactly the dream job that every girl grows up wanting to have. She lived in the city of Jericho. Also, not exactly the dream city or place to live in that time. Pagan city, nation of Israel, free from Egypt, shows up. God says, hey, you're going to go in and you're going to take the promised land. He says that to the nation of Israel. Moses, Joshua, all these guys, if you remember. Joshua goes and he's like, hey, we need to scout out the city of Jericho. So two spies, you guys go in there. The two spies go inside and they get into the city of Jericho. And the king of Jericho finds out two spies from that foreign group, the Israelites, who God had basically destroyed the Egyptians through. Two of the spies are here. They're probably going to attack us. And he's told they went into Rahab's house. Now, a lot of people go into Rahab's house because Rahab was a prostitute. So King sends word and says, Rahab, hey, where are those two guys that showed up? We know that they went in here. And she was like, they were here, but they left and they kind of, you know, went out and they're not here anymore. And she hid the two spies. She hid them on the roof. And she goes up to the two spies after everyone leaves or after the king's men leave. And she goes, hey, we know what you did. Word about what God has done for the nation of Israel has spread everywhere. And fear fills the city right now. We know God is going to take it back. And I know that this land is your land and God is going to give us into your hands. And I'm asking you one thing. I hid you and I risked my own life. Will you repay that by whenever you attack the city, 
not killing me and my family. And they said, a life for a life. Just put a red scarlet rope right outside of your window. She puts it outside the window and she risks her life in order to save these two men, even though it would have cost her, even though it could have cost her her own life if the king had found out she had hidden them. Why does he bring in these two examples? Because they both point to what authentic faith does. The actions of authentic faith is that it trusts God. It acts out of a response to that faith, even if it costs them, even when it's uncomfortable. Here's how you can know if you have authentic faith, if you have genuine, real faith, is that it is willing to act even when it is uncomfortable, when it costs you, when it costs you at work, when it costs you in a dating relationship, when it costs you financially, when it costs you your reputation, when it costs you, period. When it's uncomfortable, period. When it comes at something that makes no sense for you to act that way, for you to date that way, for you to talk that way, for you to give that way, for you to live that way, unless there's a God who's real, and then it makes all the sense of the world. The way that Abraham and Rahab displayed authentic faith is even if it costs me my life and my son, I believe you, God. I trust you. I'm going to act. And the way that you can personally know, I'm not saying you personally have, I'm saying you can personally know, do I have authentic faith, is when you look at your life, do you act in a way that you could go, man, this comes at nothing but cost to me. Dating the way that God's word says, where I actually honor girls and I don't just ghost them and I don't just peace out and I actually am like a kind person. I try to leave them better than I found them. I honor them purity or I honor their purity and sexually and I, I'm considerate of that person. That's not how any of the world dates. That's not how anybody will tell you today. That's how God says to date. That comes at all costs to you unless the Bible is true and it actually is the better way to live and it actually is something that God sees every action that you take and rewards it. Then it makes all the sense of the world. But you can know right now, hey, I act out of my faith even when it costs me. I could do other things that are kind of shady at work and everybody else in the business does them, but I'm not going to do those things because I believe God. And I'm going to walk in my integrity, as the Proverbs say, even if it costs me. I'm going to spend time every single day studying God's word, waking up early, even though the world around would be like, that is crazy. And it is crazy if there is no God and the Bible is not true. But if it is, it's the most rational, sane thing in the world. It's giving sacrificially. I know you guys feel like nobody has any cash in the world in here. But it's taking whatever you have and saying, God, everything I have is yours. How would you have me use this in giving to churches, giving to Christian ministries, giving to people in need out of a response to your faith? The authentic faith leads to actions. What are those actions of authentic faith? The third idea, it's that they choose to trust God and follow him even when it costs him. That I'm going to choose not to intellectually just say, I know God, I'm going to act on what God has said. Even if it costs me. A lot of you in the room, it's an old, old school illustration I heard when I was younger. And it was about like having a chair. And it was basically pointing out that, man, it's one thing to say, I believe that chair can hold me. I believe that if somebody sat in that chair, I think they're going to be okay. Like, it's made out of metal. What is this, Ikea? What are we doing here? And it's got solid plastic. It looks like it probably could hold me. And I believe, I believe that could hold you. I believe that chair could hold somebody up there, probably up to like, you know, 300 pounds-ish, maybe, maybe a little shy of that. But it, it's pretty sturdy looking. It could hold somebody. And if somebody said, well, what do you sit in the chair? I was like, well, I don't, I don't have to sit in the chair. I believe it. It can hold me. Why don't you sit in the chair? What, what are you, legalist? I told you I believe that the chair can hold me up. and That should be good enough for you to know. 
It's a whole different thing to say, man, I believe the chair can hold me, and to actually be willing to say, man, I'm going to sit in the chair because I can trust it. And true faith is one that says, man, even if everybody else in the world is not willing to act this way or do what God says or if it seems so old-fashioned or nobody's doing it, I actually believe it, which means I'm actually acting on it. And James says, that's because you have real faith, true faith. Abraham, Rahab, faith. My son, I'm about to close. When kids are, are young, you go swim in the pool. And this year has been like the year of the hotel for us. I feel like we've gone to more hotels. And they're all like La Quinta. So we're, that's how we ball. And, uh, and we'll be there. And we don't have a pool, but they have pools. So we'll go down to the pool and I'll bring my kids. And, um, and every now and then they'll get too scared to jump off the side of the ledge. And then sometimes they just like can't get enough of it. And they want to jump off the side of the ledge. But I can tell whether or not they trust when they're jumping off the side of the ledge to me to catch them. Whether they believe, man, I got you. I'm going to catch you. I'm not going to let you fall in. I'm, I got you. And, and they'll sit there, and especially my two-year-old daughter named Monroe, who will like stutter step of like, man, I think he'll got me. I'm not really sure. And I feel like I've seen him drop some things before. And she'll sit there. And, and uh, I know when she trusts me, because what does she do? She jumps. Until she does that, she's not trusting her father will catch her. or She's not trusting her father. She's trusting her footing on the side of the pool. But the way you can see authentic faith is that it acts and the actions that it takes is that it trusts the Heavenly Father. When no one else, when the world around you thinks, oh, that's crazy, nobody lives like that. Maybe I, I live like that because God says to live like that. And I believe that. And I get nothing in return. You know, God's not going to love me any less or love me anymore just because I date the way he says. I live the way he says. That's not why I live that way. I live that way because I believe God. When he says, when you live according to my word, the Bible, it leads to life. And when you don't, it leads to pain, regret, shame, heartache. And I believe him. Even if nobody else is going to sit in the chair, I'm going to sit in the chair. And I'm going to trust my father. Not my footing, not myself, not what I think. Conclusion, workless faith is worthless faith. Authentic faith always acts. And the actions of authentic faith, trust the Father, even if it comes at great cost to him. There's a story of, of a guy named Charles Blondine. Charles Blondine was a tightrope walker in the 1800s. He lived in France. And he was so successful that eventually he was recruited to come to America. In the 1800s, there was not a, a ton of entertainment. So a huge crowd would show up because there wasn't at that time, you know, Mavs games and PS5. There wasn't anything like that to entertain yourself. So people would flock to come see this guy. By the thousands, Charles Blondine, known as the great Blondine. He had mastered tight walking so much that he was able to walk across Niagara Falls, which is 1,100 feet long, on a three-inch rope. He could walk across in the 1800s. He got so good at it that he was able to uh, not just walk across. One point he walked in stilts. One point he walked across blindfolded. One point he got midway through the rope that was going across, and he sat down and he cooked an egg. Ate the egg, stood back up, walked back. One day he pulls out a wheelbarrow. Gets the wheelbarrow, takes his big sack of potatoes, throws the sack of potatoes in the wheelbarrow. 
Crowd's going nuts, and he's like, you think I can walk across with a wheelbarrow? Of course you can. You're the great Blondine. Crowd's going nuts. They got Blondine bobbleheads. They're just going crazy over Blondine. He walks across, wheelbarrow across, goes halfway, comes back. Crowd's going nuts. He says, who thinks that I can walk across this tightrope with a person in the wheelbarrow? Crowd goes nuts. Of course you can. You're the great Blondine. Right, calms him down. Who's going to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> Silence. Until one person comes forward, gets in the wheelbarrow. That person was his manager. He'd gone everywhere with him. He'd seen every time he'd done anything on a tightrope. He'd seen all the different feats that he'd done. And through that, his faith grew and grew and grew. So when it came to Blondine, he believed, man, I don't just believe you could. I believe it so much that I will. It's a very sharp difference between the person who steps out of that crowd and the crowd who says, I believe, but not really. How do you think he got that way? It was clear. He saw it every single time that he saw the way that Blondine acted, his faith, his confidence, and his ability to do, to walk across a tightrope, even with a person, even with hundreds of pounds of potatoes in there. I believe you can do it. And his confidence grew every single time. When it comes to your faith, it's like a muscle that God wants you to have the type of intimate relationship where every time that you trust him, it's going to grow. You're going to be like Blondine's manager where I have seen what you've done. I've seen you show up in my life. I've seen the way that when you say, how I'm supposed to think about my job, how I'm supposed to treat my parents, how I'm supposed to handle conflict, how I'm not supposed to gossip. I've seen how it goes better, how that's a better way to live. And I trust you. And every time you decide to be obedient, you know what happens? Your faith grows. It's like a muscle. It gets stronger. And James says, authentic faith. Trust one step, one step, one step, one step. And as it grows and grows, it gets to the point where Abraham and Rahab, whatever you call me to, God, I trust you. I've seen you show up before. I've seen you move in my life, and I trust you. Because living faith grows. And it grows through step-by-step obedience, whatever that looks like in your life. Tomorrow when you wake up and you make the decision, small, ordinary moments, I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to live like you say. And when you do, your faith grows moment by moment. James did not always have a living faith land in the plane. I think one of the reasons he's so passionate, you read the verses, you're like, dang, James, you're just like, boom, is because James spent so many years, he grew up as a little Jewish boy, and he had this dead religion, dead faith for years and years and years, until one day his brother comes back from the grave, and he decides I'm going to go all in. I believe you're who you say you are, Jesus. You died on the cross for my sins. My brother paid for my sin. He paid for your sin. paid for every sin that ever has been committed by all of humanity because he loved the world so much he would give his life. And he believed that. And all of a sudden, his dead Jewish religion became a living, active, life-changing faith. And he spent the rest of his life telling the world about the Messiah who can save anybody, no matter what they've done if they'll simply receive that free gift that Jesus has offered them when he offered his life for them, for you, for me. And then begin to walk in light of that faith and live it out, not to earn God's love, but because you have it already. 
And their faith grows. And I think he's so passionate because he lived dead faith. And then he had living faith. And he gave his life. And years later, after Jesus, his brother, had gone back to heaven, he was killed for his faith. For the living Messiah that he believed in, that his living faith was used to spread the message of the gospel all over the ancient world. That same living faith is alive inside of this room through so many of you who are living and operating based on your faith. You made decisions today because you believe he's the son of God. He's real, he's alive, he's king, and you operate, and I'm so proud of you. Others of you, you need to hear this. You're not a believer. You're not a Christian. I love you. I don't have any motive other than I want you to spend eternity with God and heaven, but that only happens one way, not through being a better person or trying harder tomorrow. It happens through accepting the free gift of Jesus on the cross. I believe you, God. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I'm a sinner. I'll never be able to earn my relationship with you, but I believe you died for me. And I receive your gift. You died in my place and I'm gonna live eternally with you because you made a way. And I believe that. James says that's living faith. And that's the type of faith that begins to transform a life, eventually the world around you. Let me pray. Father, there is no one here who you or who anyone in the world loves as much as you do. Every person here is loved more by you than their parents, than their spouse, than their future spouse, than anyone who has ever lived. No one wants them to spend eternity in heaven more than you do. And so I pray that you would do what only you can do, which is right now you would soften hearts of people who are lying to themselves saying, I actually believe that, all right? I, I am a Christian, I'm gonna try harder. And you would pierce through the noise and the fog and the lies and the religion. And you would allow them to in their heart believe you're who you say you are. The son of God who died in our place, who gave your life for us and came back alive. And because of that, if we receive that gift, we will live forever. I pray that you would allow living faith to mark our lives in any parts of my heart and any of our hearts of those who know you, where there is lack of life and there's death, would you take ground? Would you start with me? Help us to be more and more like Jesus, the son of God, the savior of the world, the half brother of James. We worship you in song.